The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, my friends, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews and market analysis, breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Fasani. Today on the show, we'll dive even deeper into the world of crypto. More and more companies jumping on the Bitcoin futures ETF bandwagon. We'll catch up with the man who runs the latest fund to launch the Valkyrie Bitcoin strategy ETF. So far, that new trend really taking off. So how can investors get in the game and how might they look to Bitcoin as a way to hedge against inflation? Here's my conversation with Steve McClurg, CIO at Valkyrie Funds, along with Tom Leiden, CEO of ETF Trends. Steve, the uh, Bitcoin, the ProShares Bitcoin futures, over $1.1 billion in assets, what, four days of trading? You launched your Bitcoin futures product on Friday. I keep joking, you're like Avis, you got to try harder. Tell us how this is a little different, or if it is different than the ProShares uh, ETF, and how are you going to compete with all these other big names that are coming down the pike? Hey, Bob, thanks for having me. Um, so we, we actually went live on a Friday, which is the worst day to, uh, to go live with an ETF. And on a day that Bitcoin was down 4%. And we still came out strong with, we were the 14th biggest ETF launch of all time. So uh, even though we're going up against the biggest of all time and a uh, firm that's already gathered 1.2 billion, uh, I, I think we're gonna do quite well, primarily because we're able to still stick with the October contracts and keep very little tracking error. Yeah, that tracking error was a big issue. You know, the, this big complaint among the crypto community was that the futures contract uh, would not track the underlying Bitcoin very well. So can you just tell us how is the tracking doing and can you clear up this issue about the front month contracts you're owning? Right now you just own October, is that right? But could you have contracts farther out? Could you have contracts, you know, a month, two months out, three months out? Clear, clear this up for us. Yeah, so, so right now with the current price of Bitcoin where it is, uh, there's about $630 million in notional contracts available in the October month. And we're under that, so we're able to be 100% in the October contracts. Uh, once you go out to November and December, you're going to actually hit up against some contango issues, particularly in December. Uh, so with the current CME limits at 2,000 in October, 4,000 in November, 4,000 in December, uh, if you grow any larger than that, you are going to hit some hit, hit some issues, unless of course uh, the CME decides to extend its uh, its its limit. Uh, but well, Tom, as we come into the market and others come into the market, we will absorb some. So, Tom, will the CME extend these limits? You know, this was the concern concern that these firms would eventually have to own contracts that are farther out, and so it's inevitable. You know, it'll not end up tracking the underlying eventually. This is what happened. Remember, we went through this with the USO last year, didn't we? Uh, so I guess the question here, is there any good research on how much it will cost investors to keep rolling over into these futures contracts? I mean, how expensive is the negative roll you know, going to be? Well, you're hitting on some really important things, Bob. Um, each issuer is limited to 5,000 contracts. So already it's a concern for pro shares, and that's why they apply for this uh, extension to be able to have access to more futures contracts. If that doesn't happen, we've seen some signals from the folks at ProShares that they're going to look at other derivatives like swaps or structured notes to able to fill the demand. Uh, Steve, back to you. 
do you feel the CME will grant extension number one? And if not, can you fill the demand with derivatives and swaps? Well, I certainly wouldn't want to fill the demand with derivatives and swaps or, or even repo. Um, once you start introducing repo into a product like this, uh, the cost is extremely high. Uh, so I think the best strategy is actually just open up the playing field and letting other ETF issuers in. Uh, we have uh, possibly one more this week. We have possibly two more next week. And that demand will be filled by a multiple of, of issuers uh, that will create really strong competition here. Well, when you so think about the individual investor out there, do they really know the situation when you hit that limit that that ETF issuer is, is in and to know to look at the other players? I mean, Bob, this is one of those things. First mover advantage usually in the ETF space carries yeah. a lot of weight, not so much in this regard. Yeah, but so let me just follow up with that, Steve, what, what Tom was saying here. There were, there were a lot of concerns that so many would crowd into the uh, Bitcoin futures, you know, that those firms themselves would have would have some issues. Are we just isn't the answer just extend the amount of contracts that you could potentially hold? Isn't that the issue, Steve? And, and would CME be willing to do that? Well, I think eventually they will, uh, but right now there's just really not a need to. Uh, you can you can go up against about 1.2 million in AUM and still be within the limits. And like I said, with, with us coming in, with Van Eck coming in, uh, hopefully Van Eck comes in this week as well. Uh, and then you have a lot of, of issuers to choose from and you can, uh, and, and then we can all have, have really good tracking error. But, uh, but I think as it grows, uh, you know, there's, there's probably only room for really three or four of us. Uh, and if it grows, I think the CME will extend those limits. And by the way, when we get out to those further months, I mean, October is only a 2,000 limit, a, a 2,000 contract limit. Once we get out to uh, November, then you have a 4,000 contract limit. Uh, so yeah. so we're, really, we're, we're really hoping that we stay within that limit uh, this week, uh, and then next week we can, go, we can go all in on November. Yeah. Uh, so, so, Tom, let me just switch the subject a little bit. What, what does all this mean, the success of Bitcoin uh, futures ETF? What does it mean for financial advisors that are out there who might be watching? Uh, watching? Advisors, yeah. I'm assuming they're not going to buy futures directly for clients. I'm assuming they aren't. Correct me if I'm wrong. But will they recommend Bitcoin futures, for example? Well, the huge thing, Bob, is there's a lot of demand among advisor clients. 81% of advisors are getting questions about crypto. And up until this point, there haven't been a lot of options uh, except the individual client going on off platform to something like uh, Coinbase or maybe uh, Grayscale where they can buy that themselves, where advisors not necessarily buying it for clients, some are, but ultimately we're looking for an ETF wrapper, we're looking for all the benefits of an ETF, we're looking for tight spreads, we're looking for lower fees, but there appears to be, at least at this point in time, a little concern about the pure volume. I mean, you know what happened to GLD when it first hit, and it, it hit a billion dollars pretty quick, when it was $5 billion, they were so excited they couldn't believe it. And last summer, GLD was at $84 billion. Not to say that it's on this path, but boy, can you imagine if the combined marketplace is $10 billion, you know, what does that do as far as the overall structure? Yeah, so the, the I, I guess, Tom, the, the approval of Bitcoin futures isn't changing the narrative about a physical Bitcoin ETF. 
Gensler is not indicating he's going to do anything on a physical Bitcoin. There, there is not a high level of confidence they're going to approve physically backed ETFs this year. Is, is there any reason to think that has changed at all because of what has happened here? No, I, I think his signaling has been clear. Uh, he's opened up this opportunity. We have to take full advantage of it. Uh, CME granting more futures contracts could be a huge help and provide some relief. And, and to Steve's point, welcoming other players in the space, which provides more competition. We're seeing the, the spreads very tight so far. Uh, the ARB mechanism is working very, very well. But, uh, you know, we're going to continue to see demand and advisors are going to start trickling in because if they don't, if they don't come with some type of plan to say either, look, it's not appropriate for you, or if it is a 1% to 3% allocation over a period of time that might be dollar cost average in, they're going to have to, at this point in time, come up with some type of narrative. And it may be that they're not comfortable with the overall infrastructure of futures, but I think that whole plumbing situation is going to take care of itself. I mean, we've seen what Gensler has done and said, look, it's not, it's approved. It's yeah. not validated. We as a industry have to validate it. And I think that that will be coming. Yeah. Steve, you're in the same camp, I gather. You, you think the chances of a, a physical Bitcoin future ETF is slim to none. Is that fair to say in the next, until Gensler gets control over the regulatory ecosystem, or there is a clear division of labor amongst the regulatory ecosystem. Are you, are you of the same opinion? Yeah, I mean, look, when, when we started talking to uh, uh, the SEC and other regulators back in 2017, 2018, uh, there was a very clear concern for custodial solutions for Bitcoin spot. And a lot of those issues have been resolved, uh, security, safety. Uh, there's some that are better than others. There are some that are um, that, that really act and feel like real custodial solutions, like like your Bank of New York's and your State, State Street and U.S. banks of the world. Um, but uh, I, I think the staff is still trying to get their heads around uh, what exactly is going on with these exchanges. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to put a, a, a little bit more regulatory structure around them before they say, OK, yeah, let's 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 go ahead and move forward with this. Uh, so I don't think we see a Bitcoin spot ETF until at least middle of next year. Yeah, my concern is that Gensler is signaling we may need a national legislation, a whole essentially uh, new regulatory regime around crypto in general, which might require congressional approval. And Congress can't even agree on raising the debt ceiling. So this seems very far off if, in fact, that is the solution, as opposed to piecemeal situations where uh, we saw with, with Coinbase, where the SEC kind of encroaches or just declares certain you know, uh, jurisdictional supremacy, I guess is the word. Um, Steve, your, your, your Bitcoin futures ETF did well on Friday, but it really generated only a fraction of the volume of the ProShares ETF that launched earlier in the week. I think Van Eck is likely going to come later this week. Um, how many more additional players are there? I, I have to note way down the list, Kathy Wood filed just a few weeks ago uh, in, in September for a, a, a Bitcoin futures ETF. Yeah, um, I don't know exactly how many there are, but I know that there's a few more that uh, are are likely to come in November, December. Um, you know, I, I think that us and Van Ack and, and ProShares are, are, are probably going to be the, the front runners here. Um, and by the way, we're okay of having a fractional of what ProShares has. You know, ProShares is a is a Goliath. You know, we're we're we're, we're a brand new issuer, uh, but uh, we also right now care more about uh, you know the spread. 
Uh, we've, we've been trading within a penny uh, out there. Uh, we care more about uh, uh, sticking with the uh, front, month, uh, front month uh, future rules, uh, and we also care about tracking error. Those are the things that are really going to matter in the long run, and if we can keep those things really tight uh, in the first few weeks, then I, I, I think that you know we're really going to be the long-term play here. Yeah. Yeah, Bob, you know, you know if, you, if, if you look at CME, uh, a lot of eyes are going to be on CME and, and approving uh, additional futures contracts because the moon and the stars are aligning right now for demand for crypto allocation in the advisor community. When you look at 30 years of declining interest rates and now a rising mar uh, bond market and what that does to your fixed income allocation with inflation, with the demand for alternative investments and the current trend in the cryptocurrency area, there's a lot of pressure on advisors to take a stake in the ground but they've got to be confident in the vehicles that they can invest in that are on platform and, and not having their clients go rogue and do something independent of their guidance. Yeah. So if a physical, uh, if a Bitcoin physical ETF is not imminent, are, are there ETFs? I'm trying to think of another way to play this. Are there ETFs that can use Bitcoin futures in more creative ways? E either, either one of you guys. It, can we do something else here if we're not going to get a physical Bitcoin ETF with, ETF, with, with uh, the futures contracts? Yeah, well, not, not necessarily. Well, I, I suppose blockchain, there, there's a lot of blockchain ETFs that are available that are actually investing in miners. It doesn't necessarily correlate with the price. Uh, now with futures available, I suppose uh, they can also invest in futures. I, I don't know, Steve, anything that, that you'd add to that? I mean, look, the, the reality is uh, the way a lot of advisors are getting access to their clients or even institutional clients are getting access is through private funds. Uh, you know, that's really where the majority of Valkyrie's AUM is, is in private funds that we that, 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 that we that we work with. So, um, you know, ETFs are still a really small portion of, of what we do and what a lot of people are going to be doing in the future. Uh, but there, there are some creative ways, whether it's through mutual funds getting a, a small allocation to Bitcoin futures or other ETFs that might have a small allocation to futures. I mean, I would rather have futures than, say, GBTC, right, that, that trades mm -hmm. at, a, at a really big discount and could trade at an even bigger discount. Yeah. So, yeah. Steve, uh, we're, seeing, we're seeing, play. Steve, you know, institutional allocation. So on the high end, there's definitely demand. And then, uh, you know, younger investors, Robinhood investors, uh, are taking uh, their swing, you know, at the ball as, as well. But there's this whole middle market where financial advisors manage about $20 trillion that really don't have the best solution right now. And uh, right now it appears that the futures-based ETF might be that yeah. as far as on platform. Uh, Bob, that, that's really where the lion's share of the demand will be coming. Yeah, yeah. How about the DeFi markets and ETFs? Anything creative that can be done right right there right now? I don't think so. I mean, the DeFi markets are extremely interesting. Uh, Valkyrie actually runs a, a DeFi hedge fund uh, that is uh, that, that's, that's quite fun to run. Uh, you know, and if I, I could get into the mechanics, but they're probably really boring. But um, I, I think it's going to be a really long time before you can you can put a DeFi type strategy on. Uh, you know, public market vehicle, right? Or, or even other cryptocurrencies into a public yeah. market vehicle. I think it's going to take a long time to get around, uh, to, get, to get hands around Bitcoin before they, they move on to these other vehicles.
Yeah. What I, about I other currencies? What about you know, what about Steve? What about Ethereum? Like, does this open up uh, room for the Ethereum marketplace uh, to be able to see like products? I think it will. Uh, the you know so so for Ethereum, uh, the uh, futures actually trade pretty clunky right now. Uh, so I don't think it's a good opportunity at the moment. We saw a couple of filings that were that were that were filed and then pulled. Uh, it's it's not something I'd be comfortable trading. Uh, and, and by the way, even Ethereum, you know, a lot of people look at it because it's the second biggest cryptocurrency next to Bitcoin. Uh, but uh, it's it's a completely different type of cryptocurrency. It's uh, it's a token yeah. that essentially pays for gas on a platform, right? Think about it like um, your your AT and T. Um, yeah. iPhone and applications that are being built on it, and then you're paying for data and you're paying for applications, uh, which is very different than Bitcoin, which is a cryptocurrency that's used yeah. for peer-to-peer -peer transactions. That's why I think that uh, blockchain and even Ethereum is, is so much more interesting than, than Bitcoin, which is essentially just a Bitcoin running off of the off of a blockchain technology. It's just a, a it's just broader. Blockchain in general, DeFi is a broader issue and I think has much more interesting applications. I have questions about how, about Bitcoin in general for how long it's going to last, particularly as an inflation hedge. Let me just ask you both about inflation. People keep saying, oh, we're concerned about the dollar and inflation and Bitcoin's a hedge against inflation. Do you really think that it is? These are the same arguments that are made about gold for many years. Uh, I think gold has, uh, there's a lot of people would argue whether or not gold has provided an effective hedge against inflation. Uh, you know, I know, you know, Steve, we were talking about El Salvador, you know, switching to the U.S. dollar. But what exactly does that mean? I'm not sure that's an argument for using Bitcoin as a, a hedge against inflation. Yeah, well, look, if you look at gold and you, and you zoom out a little bit, right, and you, and, you, and you look at Bretton Woods, too, and where gold prices have gone from being pegged to $35 an ounce to where gold is today, uh, it, it certainly has followed inflation, but not very correlated, right? Uh, there's there's been a lot of events and and that, that's taken out the short-term correlation, but the long-term correlation has been there. Uh, I think Bitcoin has has really been uh, the same thing, except um, Bitcoin has also experienced this tech adoption curve. So uh, we're still getting out of that speculative stage and getting into a more useful stage. I, I think we're getting close. I don't think we're there yet. But we are getting very close to that and having countries like El Salvador and potentially other countries adopting Bitcoin as a currency uh, that has a fixed supply uh, that will never go up uh, certainly helps protect smaller countries against hyperinflation. Yeah, yeah, Bob, I, I think, uh, the number the number one ahead. concern among advisors in the last year has been inflation, even though the Fed has been signaling it's transitory. But really, regarding Bitcoin, it comes down to supply and demand. There's a finite number of coins that are available, and uh, there's there's increasing demand. Whether it's El Salvador or creating more vehicles like this that we're talking about today, uh, they want to. There are more people that want to get Bitcoin in their hands in some right. in some way. It doesn't seem to be waning anytime soon. Right. You know, uh, Tom. Uh, I know Van Eck has a Bitcoin futures ETF waiting to go. Um, the word is it's this week. You got any? You know, news you can give us here? Any word on when trading might begin there? Yeah. So, you know, we, we saw that uh, they did uh, apply for an extension to go effective tomorrow. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen tomorrow. But everything we're hearing is uh, it's green light. Everything's go and 
we could probably expect something within the next week, which again okay. uh, provides more offering. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll be continuing the conversation with Tom Lydon from ETF Trends. Tom, thanks for sticking around and chatting. I wanted to just, um, you're one of the great experts in the world on the ETF business in general, and I want to just switch the conversation to ETFs in the business right now. Uh, what's amazing to me is, once again, more money uh, is coming in than ever before. Uh, billions of dollars over the transom. We're at six and a half trillion, heading towards seven trillion in total assets under management. And yet, there's still, I still see more pressure on the bottom line because of the declining fee base. So people still have money coming in, but there's pressure because of the, of the fee situation. We have, correct, we have north of 200 ETF issuers, but the top five have 90, 93% of all the business. Um, is that is that worrisome? Uh, we're, we're we're still getting all this money, and yet the, the concentration in the business is really getting intense. Does that matter for investors, or is this something you know you and I would chat about as people who follow the business? Yeah, Bob, you and I have been fans of ETFs for a long period of time, and the bottom line is they're doing exactly what they need to do. They're providing market exposure. They're providing choice, low cost, uh, tight spreads. And, and all on brokerage platforms that advisors can provide for their clients or self-directed investors can do themselves. And the bottom line is, and it, it's not sexy, but most of the money is flowing into the traditional index-based strategies, whether it be uh, the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or uh, Russell indexes or international MSCI indexes. Uh, the Barclays Ag, we continue to see money flowing into those areas that have done really, really well for the last 10 years. It's fun to talk about crypto strategies. It's fun to talk about thematics and disruptive technology. But the lion's share is in the traditional indexes, which have turned out to be best for the investors. Yeah, that's what I, I that heartens me greatly, because as much as I love talking about thematics like solar ETFs, uh, or lithium ETFs, or social media ETFs, what we call thematics. As a Jack Bogle disciple, Bogle being the founder of Vanguard, it, it worries me when we try to minutely slice and dice the universe. It might be great for really active investors, but for long-term investors, I can't help but think Jack Bogle's gonna be sitting here pointing his finger at me and saying, you know, Bob, they're gonna make the same mistake they made 30 years ago by trying to buy individual stocks or mutual funds, these thematics had the same problems. You're not, you're getting too small slice of the market, and what you want to do is stay in broad index funds. That worries right. me, but you're, you're saying yeah. that the majority of people are still sticking with broad index funds. And, like and, and, for, and, for, the, and for the right reasons. But, but look at the advisor community. Advisors manage $20 trillion. And uh, the, the marketplace is different. Uh, mm -hmm. We're seeing concerns about inflation. We're seeing maybe after 30 years of declining rates, uh, the ability for rates to tick up in the coming years. What does that do for the fixed income portion of the balance sheet? It's not good for the Barclays Ag. We've already seen uh, negative performance in fixed income ETFs. So what's happening? Um, in, investors are moving to either cash or short-term active strategies or alternative income strategies. Is that a good thing? It may be. 
but you have to be a little bit more sophisticated if you're doing that yourself. On the yeah. other side of the balance sheet with the S&P 500, we know a high concentration in very few stocks worked well for the last 10 years. However, you don't have allocation to these new, innovative, disruptive technology companies that a lot of people are investing in. And as you know, Bob, COVID has have moved up the timeline for many of these. So diversifying a little bit into these areas may be the right thing. And advisors can justify their service and fees by offering a little bit more diversification in these areas. Uh, how is the advisor business doing? I mean, is, are we still seeing a rush into registered uh, uh, independent advisors? Um, are people still leaving the old wirehouses to set up their own shop? And is that compelling given the fee structure is, is, is changing? You know, it's hard for a guy to set up a shop who's an old Morgan Stanley, you know, wealth management guy and, you know, charge one and a half percent these days. That would be a very difficult thing to do these days. Can they, is it feasible to happen? Well, a lot of them are older and manage a lot of money and probably don't have the energy to make that switch. But you know what? That's going to be passed on to the next generation and they will continue to make the move to the RIA side. They're going to move on the other, other side of the tracks where companies like Schwab and Fidelity are there in open arms to provide all the technology and services. They have the ability to offer lower fees and, and more of that will be coming. There's a lot of pressure on the wirehouse firms and the independent channels from a fee standpoint. It, it, you, you slice that dollar thinner and thinner and thinner and ultimately you see disruption and that's all for the good for the underlying investors. Yeah. At least we're not talking, you know, remember two, three years ago, we were all doing race to zero stories. When is a zero, you know, fee ETF going to come? And essentially three basis points for the S&P is, you know, it's not zero, but it's effectively zero practically. So at least we're not having those arguments. But the pressure on the mid-level stuff, the stuff that used to be charging, you know, 100 basis points is now down to 60 basis points and even 40. That's where you, that's where you start getting the fee compression though, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, you see new ideas come to market and they'll tend to char charge a premium. Look at the Bitcoin ETFs themselves. First two launches, 95 bips. Third launch that comes from VanEck, 65. Are we going to see that continue to head south? Probably with more demand and more flows, that will happen. All for the right reasons. And ultimately, hopefully, the end investor benefits. Yeah. And... Uh you're right. That's the great thing about competition, which is why I think uh, a third Bitcoin futures provider will be uh, a, a big help. And we'll see a ProShares response to that if, uh, if Van Eck charges 65 basis points this week. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, always appreciate your insights. And everybody, thank you for listening to Tom Lighton. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Here's to greater possibilities together. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.